This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal advice. The transmission of information on this podcast is not intended to establish and receipt of such information does not establish or constitute an attorney-client relationship. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements. Welcome to After the Buzzer. I'm Bob Wallace, Chair of the Sports Law Practice at Thompson Coburn in St. Louis. We specialize in representing entities with sports interests, whether it's acquisitions, facilities, finance, real estate deals, or contract negotiations, we have lawyers with a lot of experience. I started doing these podcasts because there are a lot of great topics and people involved in sports, and I wanted to let our listeners meet them. Today's guest is noted sports agent Lee Steinberg. Lee has been one of the leading sports agents for over 40 years. He was known as the quarterback's agent, having represented Hall of Famers Warren Moon, Troy Aikman, and Steve Young. Today, Lee is representing last year's MVP, Patrick Mahomes, and up-and-coming star Tua Tagovailoa, among many others. I got to know Lee in 1981 when he represented St. Louis football Cardinals quarterback Neil Lomax. Over the years, we negotiated several contracts for Cardinal players, and I claim our negotiation for Tim McDonald was the basis of the show me the money scene in Jerry Maguire, in which many credit Lee's career as the inspiration for the movie, which of course makes perfect sense. Lee has represented 64 total first round NFL picks, including the number one pick and unprecedented eight times with 11 Hall of Fame players. I may ask him, can he name those later? With over 300 professional athlete clients and over a $4 billion in contracts negotiated, not to mention $750 million in charitable fundraise, Lee Steinberg is a sports agent legend. An undergraduate and law school graduate of the University of California at Berkeley, where his first client, I believe, was Steve Bretkowski, who he knew from the dorm. It is my pleasure to welcome super agent Lee Steinberg to After the Buzzer. Lee, welcome. Really happy to be with you, Bob. So am, am I correct? Is the Tim McDonald negotiation the basis of that? Show me the money. <laughs> you can have the story any way you'd like. <laughs> okay, but, good, uh, good. That was but, that was one of the things I'd edit out if you say, I don't know what you're talking about, Bob. You had nothing but, to do with that. But it was Tim McDonald. And he was a free agent in 1993. And I had taken Cameron Crow out to league meetings uh, for the NFL, which are held that year in Palm Desert. And Tim was actually a free agent. and He could go to any team he wanted to. So they went upstairs one night and Tim was talking with, with uh, Cameron about what he was looking for in the situation. And Lou Dobbs and Moneyline was on television in the background. And <laughs> Tim gestured toward the screen and said, I'm looking for a team to show me winning, which I haven't had. I'm looking for a team to show me respect. Um, and then he, he said, or Cameron wrote, but it came, show me the money. And, uh, and which I've now heard for 22 years, uh, every time I go to an airport or, or go out to dinner. So tell me, I mentioned that you probably got your start doing Steve Bratkowski. Is that correct? Is that the story? There really was no 
traditional field of sports agentry when I started, Bob. It was 1975. The Atlanta Falcons had the first pick. Steve Bartkowski had lived in a dorm where I was a dorm counselor, and we became friends. And in 1975, he became the first pick in the first round overall and asked me to represent him. So there I was, brimming with legal experience. I had uh, graduated uh, from law school in... 74 and traveled the world for a year and uh we, we arrived in atlanta and there were cleat lights flashing in the sky uh we're going to sign the contract when we get to the airport the cleat lights huge crowds pressed up against the police line and the first thing we hear is we interrupt the johnny carson show to bring you a special news bulletin um and i looked at him like uh Dorothy looked at Toto when they got to Munchkin Land, and I said, I know we're not in Berkeley anymore. That was the first deal that you did was, what did you use as your background to, to do that? The fact that I had been involved with student politics for a long time and ended up student body president at Berkeley. And so I didn't understand very much, but I did know leverage, and there was a world football league at that time, teams like the Shreveport Steamer and the uh, Chicago Wind. And Bart was a big, good-looking quarterback, so we knew enough to know that that league would want him, and that gave us leverage, so it ended up the largest rookie contract in NFL history. Uh, but when I was student by president of Cal, the governor of California was Ronald Reagan. And he and I got into some very interesting discussions. So I had negotiated at other levels. What was the student body president at Berkeley doing negotiating with the governor of California? What were you negotiating about? About the fact that we kept demonstrating for one cause or another, especially the war uh, in Vietnam. And he would send police in that would crack down and there'd be tear gas and everything else. So, um, the campuses and campus unrest was a huge issue uh, back in uh, the mid-70s, and uh, he was determined to uh, hold the line. That's interesting. But for being the dorm counselor, what kind of law were you going to practice? What were you going to do other than be a sports agent, or was that what you always wanted to do? No, my dad raised me with two core values. There, there was no field to aspire to because both teams at that point, Bob, could still hang up the phone and say, we don't deal with agents. Uh, so there was no guaranteed right that came later in a collective bargaining agreement in 77. But in those first years, they could just hang up the phone and not talk to you if you were an agent or the famous story where they traded a player. So there was nothing to aspire to. My dad raised me with two core values. One was treasure relationships, especially family. And the second was to try to make a meaningful difference in the world in a positive way and help people who couldn't help themselves. So my background really was trying to change the world uh, for the better. And that's where I saw that athletes were the celebrities. They were the movie stars. And I thought, you know, if they would go back to their high school community and set up a scholarship fund or work with the church or boys and girls club, they could put down roots and and trigger imitative behavior. And then at the collegiate level, the alums, after all, are 
primarily related back to the school through the football or basketball programs. And this would be a group of great mentors if an athlete would set up a scholarship fund at the University of Troy Aikman and has given over a million dollars to UCLA. Um, Edgar and James repaid his uh, scholarship to the University of Miami. And then at the pro level, a charitable foundation that would have leading political figures, business leaders, and community leaders for a cause. And whatever it was that particularly bothered the athletes. So with work done, the former Tampa and Atlanta running back, we set up homes for the holidays where he's put 175 uh, single mothers into the first homes they'll ever own by making the down payment. So philosophically, I saw that I could still do the same thing in terms of making an impact in the world through the popularity and high profile of athletes. So it was when I represented the boxer, Lennis Lewis, the heavyweight champion, we did a PSA campaign that said real men don't hit women. And that could do more to trigger um, behavioral change in rebellious adolescents than a thousand authority figures ever could on the issue of domestic violence. You mentioned Lennox, uh, the boxer. So did you? So you're really known for football, but you have done other talent representation and other sports. And I know you've done some newscasters and stuff too, right? We have. With my partner, Jeff Morad, we had a practice that had over 60 baseball players, people like Pudge Rodriguez and uh, Sean Green and Matt Williams and uh, uh, Will Clark. We had a basketball practice that had a number of first-rounders and lottery picks. Um, I represented the U.S. team in the World Cup in soccer uh, back in 1994, represented some Olympians. Um, so... Uh, Basically, they're all the same principles, and and uh, it allowed us to diversify. Our current practice has mostly footballs, but we plan to move to baseball and basketball, and and now there are new fields like uh, esports and mm-hmm. uh, new sports and 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 new projects uh, coming on uh, that will alter the way we experience sports. Let's go back a little bit and talk about your early years. And, and and I always remember, as I said, we met in 1981 and you had quarterback Neil Lomax with the Cardinals and you mentioned Tim McDonald, two guys that didn't really want to stay in St. Louis. And I, I guess I kind of understood that. But what, talk about the early years representing players when you had started just breaking into this business. And as you mentioned, there weren't a lot of uh, sports agents. There wasn't really a field. And I know the Cardinals, they brought me along because they were one of the teams that would hang up on agents. Yes. And, I, <laughs> and I always remember uh, negotiating with you. And then afterwards, you know, we had to make sure that we sort of had the signings happen so they wouldn't upset the front office and the ownership. And But it's changed over the years, hasn't it? For example, the Cardinals that uh, you worked for um, ended up moving to Phoenix. And then all of a sudden they built a new stadium and all of a sudden they had money. And, and so... Um, in your era, you were sort of handcuffed because they felt like they were in a smaller revenue base, and so they had to be tougher in terms of uh, contracts. But um, in those early years, remember, when a player in football signed a contract, 
at when that contract came to an end and they were theoretically free, they weren't because the incumbent team had the right to renew them for just a 10% raise and had all the leverage. The team could just keep giving them 10% raises and they had nowhere else to play. It wasn't until 93 that free agency uh, came along. So that was like the years of dignified begging. And uh, because where else did a draft pick have to go but that to the team that assigned him? And for some reason, the the um, Cardinals liked my players. So in 1979, it was Theodos Brown. And then in 81, it was Neil Lomax. And then uh, it was Tim McDonald. And then later it was Stafford Mays. And then later it was... Uh, 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 John Lee, John Lee, the bigger, and it just went on and on. But I was fortunate because when the team did move, which I didn't think was the right thing to do, I never liked it when franchises uh, abandon their fans. Um, I and the consequence of the Cardinals leaving and the Colts going to Indianapolis was it left two empty. Uh, franchises instead of rewarding uh, St. Louis and Baltimore with the franchise, they gave them to Jacksonville and Charlotte, remember? Right. And um, but anyway, those days teams had no leverage. There was uh, teams had all the leverage. There was no free agency. Uh, so I hunkered down on trying to develop second career plans for the players with the help of some of the alums from schools and with networking, having them understand that they would meet people in business and politics and entertainment and sports. And if they would network and keep a Rolodex, they'd be able to do uh, great opportunities for second career. You represented some of the great quarterbacks in, in the NFL. Do you still have relationships with the Troy Aikmans and the Warren Moons and the Steve Youngs of the world? I do. As a matter of fact, this year, our Super Bowl party will have to be virtual. This would be the 34th party, but we're, because of the pandemic, we're having to tape it. So people like Warren Moon and Troy Aikman and, and Steve Young and Desmond Howard and a uh, whole slew of players are sending hello messages. When you're talking about teams and leverage and stuff, uh, I almost brought out my little violin. I never thought that you didn't have leverage. You, you're you a pretty good well, – how did you create the leverage so that you got $300 billion in contracts? Here was the problem. Philosophically, I thought that a holdout was the wrong thing, but it was the only way to do it because philosophically I've always thought that the battle between labor and management was a sideshow and that we ought to do our business privately and not have uh, – uh, public contract negotiations because the average income in this country is what like sixty thousand dollars. So we don't want to rub in the face of fans an athlete who can't live on eight million dollars and needs fifteen. Um, and we shouldn't have bad collective bargaining agreements. So I said to owners, look, our real battle is for our share of discretionary entertainment spending. So the real competition for the NFL is the NBA, it's uh, Major League Baseball, it's Walt Disney World, it's uh, uh, Netflix and HBO, it's other alternative ways to spend money. So we should be together building the brand. So as the years went on, I started to get close to owners because I had the 
stars on so many of the different teams and said, look, we share this together. Let's stop savaging each other and, and let that go. And, and so, for example, in 2001, the Leonard Davis was the first uh, pick of, of the then Arizona Cardinals, and we had a very smooth negotiation. He was the second pick in the first round. So my point was that that I learned a lot about negotiating, uh, frankly, from Bill Bidwell, uh, because in the Theotis Brown negotiation, I kept saying, well, if he was paying the fair market value and delivering quality players to the fans of Kansas City, that'd be one thing, but he's saving that money. If he was giving it to charity, that would be another thing. Uh, and uh, guess what? Uh, he called my bluff and he gave the differential in between the offer they were making and Theotis's to a charity in, in St. Louis. So I said, you know what? It might not be a good idea to publicly push an owner up against the wall. Right. That is the person who ultimately has to sign the check. So you better find out how to put your interests together so that we can think of new stadia with uh, jumbo scoreboards and luxury boxes and premium seating and an NFL network and how to use the Internet. And so... Um, Behind the scenes, I started doing that with owners, and it changed everything. Did you have different approaches for for different teams and different owners? And uh, you know, what what was your were you scouting negotiating with Bob Wallace as opposed to negotiating with uh, Jim Boston? Yes, because I knew that Bob Wallace had more limited resources and a more limited budget than did a team like the Dallas Cowboys who were um, taking full advantage of being America's team. And St. Louis was a little slower to develop off the field. They caught up, uh, but it, it took them to go to Arizona. So I knew you were dealing with a more limited budget. Mike Brown of the Cincinnati Bengals, uh, I believe I committed heinous sins in an earlier life because I kept drawing him, you know, <laughs> the first round draft pick in, uh, in 1987, 1992, 1994, 1995, and 1999. And had he been, I represented astronauts, he'd be the commissioner of the moon. Um, so, so the point was that you knew that Minnesota and Cincinnati and St. Louis back in the 80s, in those days, had more limited budgets. So you just had to live with the fact that you weren't going to get quite the deal you could from another team. You mentioned that in, you know, way back when uh, we had the option year and it was a 10% raise. The games changed a lot. What, what, what are the differences now? It's a lot more free for the players. A lot, uh, you know, it may not be the same as baseball, but it seems to be a lot better for the players in football. Talk about some of the differences, Lee. Well, there's just more money. For a while there, from uh, 93 to 2011, the players got their percentage of the gross up to 55% uh, through free negotiating and 45%. Now, owners have 53%, players have 47%. But the point was that the push towards free agency that started in 93 resulted in big competition over free agent players. And... B-plus players ended up getting A-plus contracts because they were the only ones available on the free agent market and the only way to enhance the team. 
work us towards the future. And the salary cap they instituted in 93 really took power in uh, 2011. So it meant a rookie salary cap where there was a lot less negotiability than there'd been before. And teams essentially made offers that were the most they could pay under the cap pretty quickly in those negotiations. That eliminated rookie holdouts, it, it, um, which, which was a plus, but less negotiability. And we devolved to a two-tier uh, standard. Big stars get progressively bigger salaries. So you got Patrick Mahomes, like it, averaging forty-seven million dollars uh, on his contract. But to make up for that, there have to be a load of players that are just making the minimum. And so we got the same sort of in income inequality, although everyone's well paid, that we do in the rest of the economy. Is that good for the sport? I mean, football is is. is such a team sport and the quarterback can't survive unless the left tackle is really good. Now the left tackles are really well paid in this league. So that it's not the income inequality that maybe other positions, but is no, that good for the game? Here's the difference. What happens is when you lose that quality left tackle because of injury concussion or something, the replacement doesn't just descend if we were using grading system it doesn't go from a to 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 a minus or b plus it goes from a to c plus or b minus and it's a drastic uh hurt not only does the team not have the money cap money they have the cash but they don't have the cap space if they could find a replacement which they can't mid-season that's of that quality no one's sitting out on the street and second of all, they wouldn't have the uh, cap room to to add the player anyway. So injury now takes a disproportionate effect because the backups are veterans at an expanded veteran minimum uh, that part of it counts against the cap and part of it doesn't. But but we have a whole lot of uh, undrafted free agents and lower round draft picks who make it very steadily. Uh, much more than in the other days. So the teams are made up of a few superstars and starters, and and quarterbacks are now making as much money as players in basketball and baseball. Um, but that's the position, and then uh, it it's all positional. As I kind of look at it, though, as I see the quarterbacks, and it seems to me the the window of opportunity for a lot of teams is when they have a quarterback on his rookie contract. Uh, and then, I mean, the reason that Brady and the and the Patriots did so well is because he took a below-market contract for so long. There's a tension between the quarterback wanting the best supporting cast to, to keep him going because it's greatly in his interest to make the playoffs in the Super Bowl. That's the player who's going to get the most endorsements. That's the player um, get the most profile from that. And the desire to be paid well. So it's sort of a balance because uh, if a contract is not structured in a way that's cap friendly enough for a contending team, then they're going to have to discard a number of players. And um, it reminds me of the time I was representing Jeff George and uh, Indianapolis traded Atlanta to get the first pick. Um, 
But in the pick, they gave up the left tackle and they gave up the wide receiver. And so even though he got to go where he wanted to go, it was with less supporting cast. So uh, it's greatly in the interest. Here's the other switch, Bob. In the time since the 80s, the game has changed. So we now have a much more pass-oriented game. And it becomes impossible to get to and win the Super Bowl without a franchise quarterback. And we'll define that as someone that you can win because of rather than with, who you can build a team around for 10 to 12 years, and who, most importantly, in critical situations, in adversity, that quarterback's thrown a couple interceptions, the crowd is booing, the center's looking at him like he's on hallucinogens, uh, no one can understand what's going on with the quarterback, and the game's getting out of hand. What does the quarterback do then? Can he compartmentalize, tune out past failures, tune out external distractions, adopt a quiet mind, and elevate his level of play to take a team to and through uh, the Super Bowl? And if you have those players, because most, probably a third of the games are blowouts, but now we have two-thirds of them coming down the last quarter and a lot of them coming down the last drive. So it's what do you do then? And if you don't have that franchise quarterback, that search will go on and on and on, and some teams never quite solve it. You talk about the franchise quarterback, and you, you, you've represented several, many, many, and, <laughs> and, are still, and are still representing. How do you deal with the, the, the quarterback, and what role do you play in – helping him navigate that compartmentalizing that you talk about or dealing with the outside pressures or dealing with the the family pressures, all that. What's your role in that? Those players come with that inborn um, because it's the same skill they needed in high school games and college games. And they have the ability to hyper-focus on this moment exclusive of anything else. So, your advice to them is stay in process, stop worrying about ultimate results, and do the things in training, preparation, and in the game that get you where you want to go. So the first stage of it is to have a smooth rookie signing. Until last year with the pandemic, we had rookies coming into uh, rookie minicamp, but then instead of going home like they did in the old days, they would stay another month or six weeks for what are called OTAs. And they would have that playbook in their hand and be working with veterans and working with their coaches. So they got a head start. So you're looking for that to not get interrupted. And then they have to be in camp on time. And then it's studying film and it's looking over and over and over again and doing the homework. So someone like Patrick Mahomes is never really out of season. I mean, he's doing vigorous workouts in the offseason. He's studying uh, plays. He doesn't use the two weeks in between uh, their bye and the playoffs. To uh, He's studying film and making sure that he's prepared. The other thing is that these players live in a bubble. And if the best cure for aberrational behavior is prevention, so it's sitting down with a rookie and explaining that from the minute you walk outside your house, you are under binocular type uh, scrutiny. So 
you cannot drive with alcohol in your system. If you go out to a bar, you have to have people around you who can steer you away from a fight. You have to be disciplined and never put your hands on anybody, but especially women in anger. And all of those things that can disrupt a career and then hurt an athlete's brand, you try to make sure that they never happen in the first place. Um, but staying in process, continuing to not be worried about newspaper clippings and outside things, uh, we've very often taken the position on a young player that they ought not do any endorsements their first year because the owner, the general manager, the uh, coach, and the veteran players are looking to see if that young man's serious about football. And I'm, you know, sure that Baker Mayfield had his rationale. He played well this year. The year before, he was struggling, but he was on every commercial. So you don't want to put that pressure onto a young uh, player. And so Mahomes didn't do uh, big endorsements until after his second year when, when he was MVP of the league. Mahomes. I mean, he's from Texas Tech, right? That's where he, that's his college. And, you know, I mean, he wasn't a household name coming out of college. Uh, those who were involved in drafting and know, they knew about him, but, you know, he he wasn't a, like Baker Mayfield won the Heisman and he wasn't a big, big name like that. How do you identify the players? And then when you do identify them, how do you go about recruiting them? And who are you recruiting? Are you recruiting their parents? You're recruiting the, the kid, uh, you know, in basketball, I'd say, are you recruiting the AAU coach? Football's not quite the same, but <laughs> With Patrick, you could see the arm skills, and then if you spent a second talking to him, you could see how brilliant he was. He has an eidetic memory, meaning he can really remember every play he ever played in football, and, and he can remember them to correct them when uh, things went awry. Um, so take someone like that. You're probably looking at whatever year they're going to come out. So with a junior, you'd be starting early before that season. And the first contacts with the parents uh, in our situation, we're looking, we're profiling young athletes for the quality of their heart, their intelligence, their role modeling, are they willing to, to do that? And then you're looking for arm strength. His arm strength is like nothing I ever saw before. And, you know, I've represented over a hundred quarterbacks and, his accuracy is like nothing I've ever seen before. He has the ability to do some freaky things. When ESPN had him out there for car wash, they do an experiment outside where there's a walkway between two high buildings. So trying to loft the pass over it is a prodigious task, okay? They had a, a dummy sitting on the other side of it. Not only did he throw the ball over the top, which most people can't do, he landed it in a dummy's lap, um, <laughs> which is, you know, counterintuitive. Um, so then you're meeting with his parents. Uh, they're probably meeting with a number of other uh, agencies. Uh, and you do a first meeting where you lay out uh, your background, path to the draft, uh, second career, endorsements, and, and a plan for them that would take him from that exact moment through draft day and then into being a veteran and then hopefully to all the way to the Hall of Fame and then to uh, second career. So um, 
So you talk about Deron Cherry, the retired safety from the Kansas City Chiefs, who, because of the Cherry Foundation, was able to to buy the Anheuser-Busch distributorship. Then we introduced him to Wayne Weaver, and Deron became the first retired player in years to ever own part of an actual franchise. So you're laying out both short-term and long-term a vision for him. So now they start to hone down and you probably have a second meeting with the parents. And that's all preceding ever meeting the player himself because they've got plenty to do. There's their last year with uh, classes and, and with trying to be the best player they can. They don't, they're close to a thousand certified agents. There were before the pandemic. Um, trying to represent these 330 draft picks. So right. there's massive amounts of competition. Um, and the biggest skill in all this, Bob, is listening. If you can cut below the layers of the onion and get someone to tell you their deepest anxieties and fears and their greatest hopes and dreams, um, so you truly understand them as an individual, not a generic player. Um, but if you can draw them out, um, then you can help those hopes and dreams, assuage those uh, anxieties and fears, and take them to whatever their individual fulfillment goals are. So anyway, it would get down to a few. <clears throat> now... States across the country now have regulations. Uh, they have state regulatory boards. So you, an agent has to, to be uh, uh, on register in those states. That's a big shift from before. It means agents are regulated by states. Then you have the Players Association able to enforce certain rules of conduct for agents, uh, or they can take away the right of representation. And then certain schools have compliance. So families may use the compliance or the union or other people to help them in the screening, but they're well prepared now. They have a list of questions where at the end, you know, Biden could have uh, appointed me for secretary of state. Um, so uh, uh, it's it's highly competitive, but there's a match where where someone feels like you get them, you offer the best services. In the modern day, we're talking about branding, social media, how to develop a, a unique brand. Um, it's um, a whole set of different services. And, um, and then you're able to, to, uh, to sign the player and you have to sign an SRA, which is a standard representation agreement that the National Football League players or the or the basketball union or the baseball union, you have to sign a contract that they design. Do you see the the players, uh, the college players, being much more sophisticated than they used to be? Do you, you know, Booger McFarland came out recently with a statement that players were more interested in brands than they were about playing. I don't know if I agree with that. Uh, I don't think I agree with that. Uh, and and he, he he put a racial uh, tone to it as well. But do you notice that players are more sophisticated now? Uh, that they come out with more of a plan than they used to? Undoubtedly, 
they're more sophisticated than they were because they've grown up. They're millennials who've grown up or whatever that generation is called. Who have <laughs> grown up with social media where you and I uh, learned it in later life. They grow up with it. I mean, you see three-year-olds on a flight working an iPad better than I can. And uh, so they're much more sophisticated as to their motivation these are unique individuals who are so hyper competitive that they want to compete and they want to win. They want to be starters. They want to win games. They want to go to a Super Bowl. They would try to beat you in tiddlywinks. So whether or not they're more aware of social media and more sophisticated doesn't matter. But they're also millennials, which means that the attention span is slightly shorter. So what used to be an hour and a half presentation may be more like 30 minutes and top of being millennials and social media they're also more socially conscious uh right now so talk about your your involvement with some of your players and some of their social justice movements uh that, that they're involved in i mean i know patrick uh mahomes did some wonderful things in kansas city for voting and all and and knowing what i know about you and and your and what you believe in it, that's important that your players are involved in that stuff I think it's important for their development also. The enemy of players is self-absorption. You know, it's it's feeling they're the center of everything and not understanding they're part of a larger society. So I encourage players to, one, inform themselves so they know what they're talking about. Two, be careful about how they do it. But three, stand up for causes that are important. So if you have unjust uh, police shootings or killings, or you have situations in the inner city, the first step is, can you raise your voice to raise awareness? And the second is, can you design a program yourself that will alleviate these conditions? So we do an agents academy and a sports career conference, and we're now trying to put a model together where we could take it into inner city schools and give those high schoolers a head start on, uh, not being an athlete, but being a professional, working for a team, a league, a conference, uh, uh, working in marketing or branding or, or PR, uh, facilities management training, uh, and try to do that. So players need to be careful because we have a very divided country, but not compromise their principles and, and stand up in a way that's effective and communicates and doesn't get misunderstood. The famous Michael Jordan quote, what he says he didn't say, uh, that Republicans buy sneakers too. Have you ever had to have a a conversation with one of your athletes saying, if you take this position, you're going to lose some fans, therefore you may lose some endorsements? Uh, are those hard conversations? And if you had to have them? They're hard only because this country, as you saw last week in Capitol Hill, you know, is divided not just between two parties, but you have active white supremacists out there and people are angry. So you're stepping into the middle of that. But if not now, when and what would be the time? Um, this is the time. And I had a father who used to say that if you're looking for someone to change a circumstance or condition or solve a problem, and you keep waiting for they or them to do it, you know, older people, political figures, he'd say, son, you could wait forever. The they is you, you are the they. So I'd like athletes to have a sense of empowerment 
where they understand as long as they know what they're talking about and carefully crafted their message, they need to speak out. Speaking of empowerment, now college athletes, and there's a lot of discussion about whether they are employees and whether they should be paid. Uh, this name, image, and likeness uh, issue. Talk a little bit, Lee, about do you think college athletes should be paid? I always tell people that I think they should be paid, but I'm not smart enough to come up with this, the, the system that works. That doesn't mean it shouldn't happen because I, I can't come up with it. I think there are enough smart people. Put them in a room, put everything on the table, and let's discuss it. What, what, what's your feeling on college athletes being paid and, and the next step in this uh, NIL uh, controversy? Here in California, we passed SB 206, which uh, allows players to, to market their name, image, and likeness with a marketing advisor. Um, and that spurred the NCAA to adopt similar rules. Just last Saturday, they decided to put the brakes on it because people were all ready to start signing with marketing agents and, and do the rest of it. That particular slice will only help so many players. Think right. of a football quarterback. Think of someone who's got brand coming out of school, plays for Alabama or Florida State. Or think Jameis Winston. Think uh, Johnny Manziel. You know, think Tua Tongo Vailoa, and um, those types. Of, and maybe maybe a female who's competing for the Olympics, like a gymnast or something. Having said that, there's so much popularity for college football that there, I am sure there are opportunities in Alabama for players who are not the superstar players. We have two types of players that come to campus under scholarship. Some of them come from middle class or families that are supporting them. Some come from families where it's really uh, tough economic circumstances. And those players are left at a standard of living on the campus, which is below their non-athletic peers. And uh, because my parents gave me an allowance when I went to school, and if they didn't, I could have worked uh, in the summer to supplement that income. The players can't. So we don't need to have them live like the Sultan of Brunei, but if you gave them enough money so they at least had access to a car, they they could get home for Thanksgiving if they chose to, they could do, they could have decent meals and, and things, then I think there would be less uh, uh, contentiousness. The problem is that whatever you would do for that group of high revenue athletes like football players, you also have to do for an equal amount of female athletes because it's right. Title Nine. So when you refer to not being clear on how to solve it, there are big barriers. And uh, but I I think that if they created some funding for athletes from disadvantaged homes, so. They don't look up at the stands and see their 80,000 fans. They don't look in the student store and see uh, their jersey number being sold. They don't look uh, at the TV ratings and realize the size of the NCAA contracts. Um, that's it. And I also would pass a rule that will, you'd have to have the pros part of it, or anyone who graduated from high school could come out and play pro ball in whatever sports they tried. Uh, very quickly, football players would realize you're 
probably not going to be a freshman running back able to survive in the NFL. If you're an offensive lineman, you're going to need to grow, you know, over time. So you'd have much better chance. But if we did that, then you'd have true student athletes on campus. And then even though I wish every player would get a degree, they don't now. And some of them, like in one and done, are just going to school to get to the pros. So I'd eliminate that group, and then you could stop alums and agents and other people from corrupting the system. Right. I, I, I agree with you uh, on that. So coming down towards the end, Lee, and I appreciate your time uh, doing this. But you've, you've worked on a lot of different issues. Uh, I know Save the Rams, some of the other things. Uh, your charitable work. What What are you most proud of? I think it's it's um, helping athletes raise hundreds of millions of dollars for a variety of causes dear to them. In my own life, when I saw the rise of white supremacy and and Oklahoma City, I thought we need a new generation to fight this, and our time is now. So I went to the Anti Defamation League of Bene uh, Breath. And we did a training program in the 30th, 30 biggest cities. We had one there in St. Louis uh, with the ADL. And we trained um, young doctors, lawyers, business people, housewives, how to spot hate groups and how to uh, intervene in crisis situations. And then how to go into school systems and um, uh, promote ethnic tolerance. So young kids are taught not to hate. And uh, we train, I don't know, 10,000 of them in the 30 biggest cities. So it's against Vanguard against hate. So it, I think at the end of it, it's what you've done for others that really is um, uh, the key. I've, I struggled with alcoholism um, uh, for, for some years. Um, I'm now in my 11th year of sobriety. But the reason I've been public about it is in the hope that it will help someone still struggling. And someone who's still um, caught in that spiral of addiction and is hopeless and searching. And there is help out there for people who are struggling. So it's trying to make a difference with your life and leaving the world better than you found it. In your mind, and, and it is, a, it's almost 45 years you've been involved in the sports this is world. Actually, 47. We're starting. 47. Wow. You look pretty good for 80 years old. Uh, <laughs> so, so you've seen that as we've talked about the league, you know, sports world change. What are you thinking of? Where will we be in 10 years? You got any, a crystal ball that you can tell us about? I think we're still going to advance on. Uh, more vibrant ways to experience sport. So we had Mahomes do a project um, in um, virtual reality where you could put a helmet on and you are all of a sudden in Arrowhead Stadium and predicated on what you do with the ball in your hand and how you throw it and what happens. You're either rushed and sacked or you're throwing touchdown passes, but it feels real like you're in that moment. I think we'll have... Um, people able to sit at home and dial up every experience an athlete has as time goes on so they can experience the thrill of a long run or, or something else. I think we're moving in all the directions of uh, there are now new leagues where fans uh, vote on uh, who the coaches are and who the, uh, uh, and they played in a studio, but they vote on who the coaches are and they get to cut players and all the rest of it. We're moving where 
all of the advances in technology. Um, I have a new plan. So you go to a stadium and you're a millennial and three hours, 15 minutes with 28 minutes of action is probably um, making you very restless if you're of that generation that's used to multitasking. So on this phone app, you would take in, you would have your fantasy stats down one side, you'd have your gambling bets down the other, you'd um, uh, be able to text and talk smack to people in or out of the stadium. We let the fans vote on one play call a game that the coach has to call. We let fans vote on one referee overturn. Now, when you touch it, you can order from the snack bar. When you touch it, you get a whole um, unending diet of content that is uh, other games, but then puzzles, quizzes, and then all monetizes at the end. Um, so I think we're heading there. I think we're heading eventually towards solution in the uh, concussion realm because there's now a profit motive. So I held the first concussion conference back in 1994, and I've held 16 since. Um, and we're actually doing uh, uh, a live talk on it, and we now do them at the Super Bowl uh, conferences. But the point is that we're coming up with football that only has blocking and tackling during uh, uh, games. Uh, and players aren't hitting otherwise. We're coming up with new nutraceuticals and pharmaceuticals that can prophylactically protect the brain or cure it once it's done. Helmetry that does more than just protect against a skull fracture and better ways of blocking and tackling. So this is a major ticking time bomb because the players are so big and strong and fast and the G-force hit is stronger. But I think we're we're getting to a place where because there's a profit motive, there'll be more innovation. I apologize for not touching on this earlier, but I did want to get your opinion on, talk about the lack of diversity of, in hiring in the NFL. I mean, we're going into another season and it looks like we'll have one person of color be, being hired. There's something wrong with that, isn't there? Yes, there is. And the tragic thing is we've gone backwards. Right. Um, so we were at points with many more head coaches and many more. It's important for so many reasons. Um, communication skills with the players. It's important because it role models for young blacks. They don't have to be an athlete, that they can be in the front office. It's like when Obama was elected president. We can be president. So we can also, there are thousands of jobs in sports which are non-athletic. And we need to make sure that we have enough diversity that the Rooney rule works, right? And in front offices. Now, the way you have to start is you have to start bringing in people of color at a younger age, right? So they work their way up the front office. They work their way up the coaching staff. So you, the infusion has to start at the bottom. So you're you're getting a number of uh, coordinators in football who are just ready to take the next step or who are people of color and you're getting enough um, uh, people. But look at the players, they're two thirds, 70% African-American and, um, um, and pro footballs are great pastime and, and passion in this country now. It's not only the most popular sport, it's the most popular televised entertainment. Some weeks, five of the top 10 shows are that. So it has to set a model for other sports. Um, and uh, football should be first in, in 
having um, talent, but you've got to get them to the coordinator level first. You've got to have large numbers of, of black, Hispanic, Asian, whatever um, assistants and then coordinators so that you've got so many of them coming out. It, it was similar to black quarterbacks, right? You look at it, the MVP of the league two years ago was Patrick Mahomes. The MVP of the league last year was uh, Lamar, Lamar Jackson. Jackson. And, uh, you know, you look all around at uh, Russell Wilson's and Kyler Murray's and Deshaun Watson's, you know, of the world. And uh, they're setting a great example, but we need to have more. It's not um, an option. We just need to do this. Can we get the players to become a voice for that? We want to see more of us in these positions. I think that's a very good suggestion. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll, now that it's the off season for most players, uh, I'll start talking with them about that. I'll call it the Wallace program. Okay. That, that'd be, and if you need any help, I would love to do that with you. So in, in closing Lee, how, how much longer are you going to, be involved in this arena remember i've always picked the th things i thought were fun and interesting to do along with representing athletes so if it was you know saving the san francisco giants if it was writing two best-selling books if it was being the consultant on a series of motion pictures um all those things so we're training younger people to i've got a really good um younger partner chris cabot my son matt is also an agent we've got younger people to do some of i'll keep my hand in but there are other fun avenues well that's great well lee thank you for taking the time i know you're busy i know you gotta are you heading to kansas city this weekend i am you can get in the stadium um, i guess I guess you know somebody, huh? No, no, it's no agents allowed, right? <laughs> it's just like it used to be. Um, yes, yeah, somehow I think I'll I'll uh, uh, go in. The other game is Green Bay uh, versus Tampa Bay that we have uh, clients in, and uh, I'm trying to convince our younger lawyer Chris that he must go to that game and sit outside in the stands. <laughs> Yeah. While, while an aging, decrepit... Uh, uh, <laughs> I hear you. There you go. Well, good. Well, thank you, Lee, very much. I appreciate your time. Good luck. Uh, good luck to, to our, our Kansas City boy in, uh, in Missouri. We, we root for him here in St. Louis. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're, they're such a fun team to watch, and he's such a, he's such a good player. So uh, best of luck to you, and I appreciate you taking the time. Well, it's my pleasure. You've always been great at what you do and a real gentleman, and uh, you've made your own contributions to the world of sports, for which we're grateful. Thanks, Lee. All right, to our to our listeners, uh, I, I hope you enjoyed listening to, to Lee and that you enjoyed this and our other podcasts. And if you have, let us know. You can provide your feedback by going to the Apple Podcast and going to the rating and review section for our podcast. If you're listening on Stitcher, go to stitcher.com. And if there's a topic that you would like to hear us discuss, let us know that too. We thank you for listening.